good morning. We're finishing up with the book of Job. Maybe you're grateful for that. Job's not an easy book. I preached through it one time. I think I preached through most of the Bible multiple times. And I remember the attendance getting a little lower as uh, time went on. But one thing that encouraged me is we had a, a man that would come and he had real bad back problems. And he would be hunched over. And after sitting an hour or so in church, I tried to keep my services to an hour unless we had communion, it would be all he could get to stand up and straighten out and get out the door of the church. I was visiting one time and he, was, uh, he said to me, I really enjoyed your series on Job. He says, I call him my friend Job because somebody that goes through suffering every day in their life can really begin to identify with Job as those who are not necessarily suffering that much cannot maybe identify as much with him. Today we tie up the loose ends and Phil start, Pastor Phil starts something new next week. Last week, we presented the glory of God as being the answer to the missed arguments of um, Job and of his three friends as to why Job was suffering so much. Job never finds out why he was suffering like we do from what we see in the first couple chapters. He had to learn not why he was suffering but to trust God and His goodness even through it. In that presentation last week, and I, I hope you can get too lost through it as I went through it, that as God's greatness was affirmed and the humiliation of Job is realized, Job confesses that he spoke of things he did not know and were too great for him to understand, and that he had nothing more to say on the subject. And today we tie up the loose ends in three ways. First, Job's repentance, kind of a review from last week. Job's um, vindication, though some commentators don't like that word, Job's vindication, and then Job's restoration. Let's take a look at Job's repentance. In Job chapter 42, where we ended last week, verse 6, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Being presented with the all-knowing God, the all-powerful God, Job regrets the things that he had said out of his pain and out of his misery. He knows now that it is not his to question God, it is his to trust God in his wisdom, his power, and his goodness. And many treatments of Job, it is presented that God is a God of compassion but one that was powerless to help Job. I don't think that's a good view of a theology of God, that God suffers with us, but can do nothing to, 
to alleviate that suffering. To them, if God allows Job to suffer, he's a, uh, not a loving God. And so they take away God's power in order to make him a loving God who identifies with the suffering. Others present the power of God. But when you present the power of God, that leaves a God without wisdom and without goodness. However, God is all those things, and we need to be careful in our theology that we don't twist the character of God in order to fit into these considerations that we have. God in his creation shows his power and his wisdom. God is so beyond us, so phenomenal. As the psalmist says, your thoughts are greater than my thoughts. We can't fathom his wisdom his power are his goodness. His ways are so much higher than our ways. God is to a great extent a mystery. And when we put God in a box and think we have him figured out, that's when we don't have him figured out because God cannot be boxed. God cannot be contained. God is beyond anything that we can understand. The providences of God are a mystery for us. And as we grow in life and see the mysteries confronted more and more, we begin to understand this more and more. And as our faith is tested, we must understand these things. Neither Job or his three friends and all the arguments of these, these 42 chapters were able to untangle the mystery of God in a proper way. And Job sees that and says, therefore, I despise myself, in verse 6, and repent in dust and ashes. Ours is not to question God, although God's big enough to stand up to our questioning. It isn't ours to question God, but to trust him. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is, and he rewards those who seek him. Job said, I've sought him, and there hasn't been any reward for that. And his friend says, you're getting the reward, do you, because of your wicked lifestyle. But Hebrews tells us we need to keep the faith. Even when that faith is hard to keep, even when our life is falling apart, even though nothing is going our way, even though it's sorely tested at times, we must believe that he rewards those who seek him. We must believe that God is working all things together for the good of those who love him, for those who have called according to his purpose, believing that in the end it'll all be shown to be working for good, though we may sometimes pass through the valleys and the shadows and the death to get there. This is where we must be in the horrible and evil events of our life. The things that befall us in this God-cursed sinful world Whatever evil has come into our life, and had you questioned the justice of God's providences for you, these must be rejected in the light of our ignorances of the purpose of God and his love for his children. Joseph understood this, though his brothers didn't. 
Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery into Egypt. And there he rose in Potiphar's house to head of the household. But through the lustful wife, he was reduced again and thrown in the prison. How much can one guy take? Made a slave, made free, and then imprisoned. But he rose to second highest in Egypt to save the line of the promised seed of the Messiah and to save his family who sold him into slavery to keep them alive. Well, when Joseph's father died, the brothers came to him and said, Our father said before he died for you not to take what we did to you into account and forgive us. And Joseph says, Am I in God's place? Yes, you did mean what you did to me for evil. I understand that. But I also understand that God meant it for good, for the saving of our family. So those are the considerations we must have when we consider God and God's working in our life. I don't know what God intends out of this. I can't see the end from the beginning. And I will trust God that ultimately it's all for my good. Because he who did not withhold his own son won't withhold from us any other good thing, as Romans 8 tells us. Now, the purposes of our lives may not be as significant as God's purposes in Joseph's life, in both our blessings and our misfortunes. But this loose end is now tied up. And what do we need to repent of as we stand before the all-perfect God and we've questioned His goodness after sending His Son, Jesus Christ, to be our Savior? Secondly, we see Job's vindication. Picking up at verse 7, the next verse. After Jehovah had spoken these words to Job, Jehovah said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. That's kind of interesting. God has spent many chapters here kind of blasting Job for his attitude and what he said. But despite his complaints against Job, these three friends were even more out in the left field and further from God than Job ever was. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. It's interesting, Job wasn't required to give a sacrifice. He had made his sacrifice in flesh. But these three friends were so far off they had to offer a sin sacrifice. And then he says, my servant Job shall pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. This is the restoration of Job. This is Job's vindication. Job is going to be God's high priest again, as he was for his family. When his family had a party and his, and his children were partying, he would always pray for them after the party, lest they sinned against God and they're getting together. He was the high priest of his family. And here he's made priest, not only for his family, 
but for his friends. The one who would intercede for them. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz, Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite, went and did what Jehovah told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. God understands. He knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows that Job was speaking out of his pain. God's big enough to take that. He knows that he had no insight that Satan was doing this. There was a cosmic test going on between evil and good in Job's life and that Job did not understand that. That a man so godly should be so hated and destroyed by the forces of evil. God understands that Job was speaking out of his pain as he understands when we speak out of our pain. And the darkness, as grace is seemingly withheld from us, God has nothing more to say to the humbled and repentant Job who despises himself and repents by covering himself with dust and ashes to indicate his lowliness. But against these three friends who were so far off the mark, who were condemning Job who should not have been condemned the way they were condemning him. They were so wrong in the application of the theology they gave. It was not Job's evil that caused his suffering. It was his trusting in God and his being full of God's goodness that caused it. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3.12, those who live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And we are told in Acts that through suffering we must enter into God's kingdom. Persecution and suffering are a part of our, as Paul says at the beginning of the book of Colossians, are filling up the sufferings of Christ. We who live for Christ continue the sufferings of Christ because we are his body on earth. And Christ still suffers in this world through the suffering of his body, the church. And that's the way it will be in this sinful world. Job was being persecuted by spiritual forces of evil and his friends unwittingly, probably not intentionally, but unwillingly played into those same evil forces to give them voice. Job spoke rightly though confusedly of the evil that God had brought upon him. But the friends had spoken maliciously, jealously, and cruelly about Job and God's providences in his life. They, not Job, therefore, required a sin sacrifice. And that they might be rebuked and Job vindicated, this one that they had so persecuted was now the one who was praying for them to be accepted before God. Because Job was already and always accepted by God. 
Their future favor with God was based on Job's being willing to pray for his enemies and his tormentors. And this way, Job is, is often a foreshadowing of the Lord Jesus Christ, the suffering servant of God, the one who intercedes for others in their sin. Job was lifted up in vindication and his godly spirit showing in that he did pray for them. He didn't hold resentment against them who had twisted God's truth and attacked his character so unmercifully. Job was lifted up not in praise, but in matter-of-fact approval and of his priestly position in praying for the forgiveness of his friends. Second loose, second loose end tied up. What enemies do we need to pray for? And are we really willing to be the better person when they haven't been? To forgive and to pray. Thirdly, Job's restoration. Verse 10. And Jehovah restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And Jehovah gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that Jehovah had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a gold ring. God gave back everything he lost in double. Book of Revelation talks about the evil of this world being repaid double because of the blood of the saints. And here we see the, the righteous being paid double for the suffering that they go through. Only we'll be paid a lot more than that in heaven. As, as Paul says, the sufferings of this world have, there's nothing to compare with the glories of heaven. One instance in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ will make up for all the suffering of this world and surely to be with him in eternity will more than be double. We see here, however, that he didn't replace the children in double. We see that later down. We're going to consider that in a little bit. Maybe because the first children were still alive because they were in heaven. And the new children, seven sons and three daughters, would be with him also in heaven. So in heaven, he would have the double. He had the double now. They're in heaven where all the other cattle, things on this earth were doubled, the children weren't. And maybe that's because of the thought that God is not the God of the dead, even though they are dead from a human point of view, but he is the God of the living. Now, we forsake all to follow God. 
and all is taken away for his sake. But there is much more ultimately in return. Jesus' own disciples said, Lord, we've left everything to follow you. What do we get? And he says, you'll get so much more in this life and the life to come of houses and parents and children and so forth and so on. And upon his exoneration by God, all those who forsake him in his misfortune and ugliness return to him in sympathy, comfort, and charity. Isn't it true that most people are fair-weather friends? You really find out who your friends are when trouble comes and who stays around to be with you in the trouble. Those with power, money, fame have many friends. Those without power, money, or friends are friendless and often in the street. Those friends may not be there when we fall, but when we come back again and return and are lifted up, they'll return. Kind of a cynical view, isn't it? But here we see it. Now they all come, now that Job is okay, to comfort him in everything. And the scriptures say that even our mother can forsake us. But Proverbs 18, 24 says there's a friend that sticks closer than a brother, and Jesus is that friend. Jesus is that one that says, I will never, ever, no, never, ever. That's the emphasis in the original language. I will never, ever, no, never, ever leave you. God was with Job through that. No one else really was. But when we're safe, those returned. And he got the comforted then that he should have had when he was in affliction, in affliction, even though he didn't get it then. Verse 12, And Jehovah blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, it was 7,000 in the first chapter, 6,000 camels, it was 3,000 in the first chapter, a thousand yoke of oxen, which was 500 in the first chapter, and a thousand female donkeys, which was 500 in the first chapter. He had also seven sons and three daughters, matching what was in the first chapter as we went over. And now we see something curious. Something is being submitted here that seems to be out of the character of the rest of the book. And, and I pondered over this, and I looked at commentaries, and, and nobody s seemed to get it. What's going on here? And I'm thankful for the commentary of John Gill, a Baptist Calvinistic minister and scholar who had the same thoughts I had on this passage, and he lived in the 1700s. So this is an old view. And three daughters, and then the ending of the book concentrates on these three daughters. Why? 
Why the concentration on the daughters? And he called the name of the first daughter Jemima. Why do we have her name? We don't have the son's names listed at all, either the first set or second set. But all of a sudden now, these women's name are going to live through biblical history and be repeated over and over again. Why should they be named and made known? And Jemima means day in the original language. And it appears that Job named her day because his night was over. And he gave this beautiful name to this daughter. And the name of the second was Keziah, from what we get Cassia, which is a sweet aroma like cinnamon, but not quite as strong. And the stench of his suffering and wounds was now healed with a beautiful fragrance. And the second daughter's named Fragrance. And the name of the third was Karen Hapuk, which literally means eyeliner. Because the women in the Middle East use eyeliner to make their eyes look bigger and more beautiful. And so his, his life, which was so ugly, was now like eyeliner. His life was made more beautiful. And he gave these beautiful names to these daughters and couldn't that been explained in a different way? No, they're done for the daughters whose names live forever as a reminder of God's blessing to him of the graces of the feminine as being God's blessing to him. And in verse 15, in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And I take that as more than physical beauty because you can be a physical beauty on the outside and ugly on the inside. And you can be not so pretty on the outside and have a wondrous spirit that everybody wants to be around. There were not any so beautiful. Why again the exaltation of these daughters? and to mention their beauty. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. Modern feminists will tell you that women never inherited in the ancient world or a hundred years ago. It's a lie. They did. Not commonly and not in all cultures, but they did. Usually the firstborn son got half the inheritance and the other brothers split the other half and the women only inherited from their husband's side if they were married or they were taken care of by their brothers. But Job gives his daughters an equal inheritance with the sons. Why? About the same time there were women coming to Moses whose father had no sons. They went to Moses and said, it's unfair. It's unfair that we do not get to inherit because we're not men. 
we need to inherit so we can keep our father's property in the family. Moses didn't know what to answer. He went to God and God said, they're right. Give them inheritance. That was 4,000 years ago. And here we see Job gives the, the daughters equal inheritance. And I'm thinking, maybe when Job lost all power, all health, was reduced to nothing, he began to identify with those in society who had nothing and suffered and were always in second place and were always blamed for the place that they were in, like he was being blamed for the place where he was in. And he determined, as women also being made in the image of God, that this would not be so in his new family, that his women will be honored. And this is a preview, again, Joe being a type of the Lord Jesus Christ, a preview of what would be com coming in the age of the gospel. Turn with me to Galatians 3, or, uh, first of all, to Acts 2.17. Acts 2.17. It's Pentecost. And they're trying to explain what has happened with the falling of the Holy Spirit. And a prophet is quoted, giving what the Messiah age would be like. And picking up at verse 17 of Acts 2, it says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men shall see vision, and your old men shall see dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. In the coming of the Messiah, women were lifted up in ways that they were not under traditional Judaism and haven't been under so many other religions. Christianity exalts. Christianity recognizes the equality, an equal inheritance, Turn with me now to Galatians 3.28. Got sticky pages. It's a new Bible. There we go. For as many of you, verse 27 of Galatians 3.28, as were baptized in the Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. 
all one in Christ Jesus. When we walk through the doors of the church, when we enter into the kingdom of God, there's no distinctions anymore, no matter whether we're high or low. Slaves can be church officers, and free men may not necessarily be because they do not meet the qualifications. There's no distinction between slave or free in the church. There's no distinction between Jew and Greek. Race and nationalism and all those things fall by the wayside and have nothing to do when we enter the door of the church. Whether we're male or female, there's no second-class status. There isn't distinctions as were made in the law in the Old Testament. In Christ Jesus, when we walk through the doors of the church, there's no male and female. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ with equal dignity, with equal spiritual filling, with equal redemption in Christ. And in 1 Peter, the, sec- the third chapter, and the seventh verse, husbands are being told that they read, need to remember this about their wives. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Not necessarily that she is the weaker vessel, but treating her as a precious vessel, not the stoneware that's so, so thickly cast, but the, the, the wear that is finer, as the finer vessel, since they are heirs with you in the grace of life. As Job's daughter inherited with the sons, so the women in the church inherit with the men. We are all heirs together in the grace. And when we don't act that way towards our wife, what is the result? So that your prayers may not be hindered. It hinders our relationship with God and our prayer life when we do not treat our women and our life with the same dignity as we treat ourselves. And so, God bless to us these considerations as we seek to follow His ways. And then finally, going back to Job 42 and following out the last few verses, verse 16. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. 140 years. We don't know how many years he lived before that. If God doubled his years, he might have lived 140 years when he first had his afflictions. And God doubled them to 140. We don't know. All kinds of commentators have speculated. 
but the idea is that Job was restored and died finally in full age, another sign of God's blessings. Now, we don't look for our restoration here. We don't look for, like Job, to have all this cattle and all these wonderful material possessions, though God may be pleased to grant those to us. The Gentiles seek for these things first, but Jesus says we seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all those other things will be granted. We see, rather, our full blessing granted in heaven where there will be full blessing despite what we have received this side of heaven. Remember when, um, when Lazarus died and the rich man died and the rich man ended up in the fires of hell and Lazarus ended up in Abraham's bosom and Abraham uh, was asked by the rich man to come and cool his tongue or have, have Lazarus come and cool his tongue. And God says, no, no, you received your good things on earth. And Lazarus received bad things on earth. And now in heaven, the, it's reversed. And because you did not do anything to help your brother in his suffering, there's no one to help you in your suffering. And because no one helped him in his suffering on earth except the dogs that licked his wounds. So he has full blessings in heaven. Let us pray. Lord, we do thank you for the lessons of Job. Just lessons that we need to apply in our lives also. And we pray that as we reflect on all these things, that we be better believers for, better followers of yours, and better brothers and sisters to one another. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, please visit our website at www.mercyhillnj.org. We meet every Sunday at 10 a.m. at the church house located at 300 University Boulevard in Glassboro off of Harvard Avenue, adjacent to the J. Harvey Rogers School and near Rowan University. We'd love for you to join us. Please see our website for directions. Thank you again for listening to the Mercy Hill Sermon Podcast.